This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to one of our mutual favorite westerns, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed by John Ford, starring James Stewart, Vera Miles, Lee Marvin, and John Wayne. However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, it will be our 100th episode, and we will be covering one of the biggest and most widely recognized great films of all time to celebrate, The Godfather, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast, G-M-O-A-T podcast. Additionally, did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, We put links to take you right to either the notes for that specific episode or to the full ranked and graded list of movies we've covered so far. Just open up the episode and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. Then, as we announced in the preview episode, we are taking the month of March this year to do another full trilogy and you can help us decide. We're going to be putting up a Twitter poll on our profile, at Podcast to pick between four fan-favorite franchises to cover this March. You can pick between the Jason Bourne Trilogy, the Austin Powers Trilogy, the Naked Gun Trilogy, and the Oceans Trilogy. If you don't have Twitter but would like to participate, write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com with your vote. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. So, Dad, I do not remember the first time you showed me this movie, but I do remember loving this from whenever I saw it, approximately, I think, in my early teens, all the way up to now, and I think I usually watch this at least once a year. So what about Liberty Valance is so endearing to you in a way that many of the other major Westerns is not? When I first saw Liberty Valance, I was a little bit older. I think I was in either college or law school. When your mother and I were first uh, dating, and we were dirt poor. She was in college. I was in law school. I would uh, record old movies on my VCR overnight and um, put together three, four videotapes. This is VHS time. And uh, take my VHS player to lacrosse to see her, and we'd hook it up and we'd watch film. And I had always been, as a kid, fascinated by the Old West. And this film, to me... And I guess I'll just kind of jump the gun what this movie is about. It's the whole concept of legend and fact. That legend and 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 the Old West is built of characters that are more legend than they are of fact. Guys like Wild Bill Hickok and Wyatt Earp and all these guys, there's much about them that's bigger than life uh, that made the Old West so romantic and such a interesting concept of American life. And so to me, this is the definitive uh, story of legend and fact, where the two cross, and you see how they diverge. And I think it's basically John Ford's salute and his, I would say more or less his conclusion to the Westerns that he had directed through the years. This kind of summarizes the entire aspect of the Western and puts it into the time frame of the 60s during a rather tumultuous period in American history. For me, I think more than anything, why this appeals to me, it feels like the last chapter of the Western, because realistically, what the majority of this movie is concerning is the final moments of the romantic West as we know it, as you referred to it just a minute ago, that 
the good guy with the gun can beat the bad guy with the gun. Or if you're more cynical than that, it's a completely dog-eat-dog world where the only way to survive is eat or be eaten. And this movie really contrasts the law and order guy with the altruistic guy who lives in between both worlds, John Wayne, and then finally Lee Marvin's character, Liberty Valance, which survives only on the fact that he is the toughest guy south of the picket wire, save for John Wayne's character, Tom. And when we throw in James Stewart, who in no way appears to be a person that you would put in westerns and put him as kind of this lawyerly, almost nerdy character who has no business being in a gunfight, but finds that he's the only one willing to stand up on his own principles against the guy with the gun, who's the bully, who's the enforcer. I think that's where this movie gets me because as someone who is short and uh, for lack of a better term, portly, I've always been on the receiving end of a lot of intimidation from people who are bigger than I, who tried to push me around, and it was never my inclination to back down. And so there's a lot of things, being a lawyer's kid, that I see myself in James Stewart and trying to stand up to this person, while at the same time that there's a certain principle of law and order and wanting to do what is right, establishing that might makes right no longer is the valid defining philosophy of this world. And I think that the romanticism of the West has been primarily about the strongest and the most elite are the only ones that survive. I I agree. It, it borders almost as an anti-Western Western. Yes. It's, it's not quite to the level of the anti-hero, but it does... Well, I don't think it's an anti-hero, but I agree no. more on the sentiment of the anti-Western. Where you would get a anti-Western with a potential anti-hero, I think that most people place is a movie we haven't covered yet, but will be at some point, Unforgiven. Yeah. Which is a much more violent, cynical film. Correct. It's been a while since I've seen it. I should actually sit down and watch it again. I think it's probably on streaming somewhere. Uh, you should be able to find it. But again, we'll be covering that at a different point in time. So I found it fascinating in doing the research for this, though. The New Yorker's Richard Brody described this as the greatest American political movie because of its depictions of a free press, town meetings, statehood debates, and the civilizing influence of ed education in frontier America. So I pose this to you. Is this a political movie? Thinking about it, we have How the West Was Won. This is uh, this could actually be renamed How the West Was Tamed. Yeah, I, I could buy that. It's not the gunfighters coming into town. It's the lawyers. It's not the rabble-rouser. It's the drunken newspaper editor. The educated become the elite, as opposed to the strong. Correct. And it, it starts to see the balance or the shift of the balance between brute strength and intellect. I would agree, but that doesn't inherently answer the political question of this movie. I thought in ways, I don't ever really think of a Western and a political movie in the same vein. I mean, to you and I, I think of a political movie, I'm immediately thinking to something like All the President's Men. That to me has always been a political movie, even though it's a journalism movie. Because it's kind of a political scandal movie. I guess if you want to put something like The American President would be a political movie, but what defines political movies? And I think there is something to be said for his opinion on this. I found it actually quite fascinating that I think this has a lot of roots in what we would say is uh, the beginnings or what used to be what was taught in civics when civics was still a class that they taught in education. Yeah. Well, and actually, if you're going to talk about this as a political movie, we should talk about it as a political movie that we that you have not mentioned, which is another James Stewart film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Sure. Which is, again, a situation where the idealism, the idealistic, is pitted against the 
moneyed interests or the stronger individual. So then another alternative title for this would be Mr. Smith Goes to the West. I can see that, yes. So who would you say is the main protagonist of this film? It's Wayne. Wayne is an example of a way of life in the West that is dying, and he is caught between the Old West and what is the New West, understanding that might does not make right, and seeing that, which is in part why he ends up relinquishing Hallie and helping prop up Rance as the politician and the future of the city because he realizes that's the direction that it's going and his ability or his viability is being lost into the future. He knows that he is going to be antiquated. But that doesn't answer the question. How? Reframe the question so that I apparently I'm not quite getting. I asked you who the protagonist of this was. You said Wayne, but you didn't say why he was the protagonist. Everything resolves around him. The good, the bad, he is an opposite to every character in the film in some way. He fights Liberty Valance. He fights Rance. He, in some ways, fights Hallie. He has to pretty much dance around every character in the film to some extent because he is antiquated. So I would have never given it a second thought. I always assumed that James Stewart is the protagonist in this. He's the top build character, even though they were both pretty equal stars at this point in their careers and pretty close in age. But Stewart had defined himself more on different kinds or different genre of films. That being said, the reason why I asked this question at all was I saw a line from a Bogdanovich interview, ironically, with John Ford, that John Ford actually admitted that the protagonist is Wayne because every character relationship is defined by their relationship to him. Liberty Valance is the toughest man south of the picket wire, except me. Rance is the hero and savior of the town when he's backed up by Tom's gun. Hallie is defined by her relationship to Rance only when Tom is allowing her to be let go and allowing Rance to basically take her as his own. I mean, every character defines themselves by their relationship to Tom. And honestly, it's nothing that I had thought about previous to seeing that. But once it did, it kind of opened up the movie to me a little bit. Well, really, Wayne is the Old West. It is how the Old West has affected all aspects of society in the Old Western states explains the culture, it explains the lifestyle that many Westerners live, whether it's from the near Midwest, kind of the Nebraska, Oklahoma, into Colorado, and Wyoming, and Montana, I think Arizona, I think it explains it. And that's, Wayne affects everyone in every aspect as the representative of the Old West, the West of the 19th century. So I'll just circle back then to the normal question we ask at this point in every show, but what is your relationship to this movie then? It is a movie I had seen bits and pieces of for years. And it is, again, as we seem to do in every episode, I revert back to my dad. It's a film my dad always liked and used to talk about, but it wasn't on a lot. And I just happened to see the film. I think I watched maybe half of it once while I was in high school or college with him. And then when it came on again, uh, it was one of them that I recorded and watched with your mother. I think if I remember right, we watched this and then watched the um, Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason film. The Hustler? Um, Hustler. In back to back on one night. 1960, 1962. Okay. So, so my relationship to this, and I mentioned most of it at the top, I don't remember the first time I watched it, but the most distinct thing that I do remember about this is that for a long time before I'd seen the movie, 
you had claimed that John Wayne should have won his Oscar for this movie and not True Grit. And I still say that. And I would tend to agree. I don't think I've seen the original True Grit in its entirety, but I do think that Wayne's performance is good enough in this one to be much more memorable and profound in a way that I think only lives in the legacy of this movie that isn't necessarily one that could have been in the moment, which we'll get to when we get to the scoring of the film. Okay, but before we get that far, uh, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Questions arise when Senator Stoddard, James Stewart, attends the funeral of a local man named Tom Donovan, John Wayne, in a small western town. Flashing back, we learn that Donovan saves Stoddard, then a lawyer, when he was roughed up by a crew of outlaws terrorizing the town, led by the tough but vile Liberty Valance, Lee Marvin. As the territory decides its fate of whether or not to become a state, the wealthy cattlemen recruit Valance as a hired gun to bully the farmers into backing down on statehood until Tom and Rance stand up to him, and we see if the law will finally catch up to Valance's gun. Thank you. Cast for this movie, John Wayne as Tom Donovan, James Stewart as Ransom Rance Stoddard, Vera Miles as Hallie Stoddard, Lee Marvin as Liberty Valance, Edmund O'Brien as Dutton Peabody, Andy Devine as Marshall Link Appleyard, Ken Murray as Doc Willoughby, John Carradine as Major Cassius Starbuckle, Jeanette Nolan as Nora Erickson, and John Quaylen as Peter Erickson. Recognition for this movie, it was only nominated for one Academy Award for Best Costume Design for the Black and White category for Edith Head. In 2003, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains list as Tom Donovan was a nominated hero. In 2005, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes for the quote, Maxwell Scott, This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. 2008 for AFI's 10 Top 10, nominated as a Western film. And in 2007, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. It is considered the last great film of director John Ford, who still holds the record for most Best Director awards with four. His last three films were Donovan's Reef, Cheyenne Autumn, and Seven Women. Did you know? John Wayne suggested Lee Marvin for the role of Valance after working with him in the Comancheros in 1961. Did you know? Several reasons have been put forward for the filming being in black and white. John Ford once claimed it added to the tension, but others involved with the production said Paramount was cutting costs, which is why the film was shot on sound stages at the studio. Without the budget restraints, Ford would have been in Monument Valley using Technicolor stock. It has also been suggested that since both John Wayne and James Stewart were playing characters 30 years younger than their actual age, Wayne was 54 when the movie was filmed in the autumn of 1961, and Stewart was 53, the movie needed to be in black and white because they would never have gotten away with it in color. The age difference was particularly noticeable in Stewart's case since he was playing a young lawyer who had only just graduated from law school and had moved west without even practicing law back east. Did you know? This is the first occasion of John Wayne calling someone Pilgrim. Did you know? James Stewart related that midway through filming, John Wayne asked him why he never seemed to be the target of John Ford's venomous remarks. Other cast and crew also noticed Stewart's apparent immunity from Ford's abuse. Then, toward the end of filming, Ford asked Stewart what he thought of Woody Strode's costume for the film's beginning and end when the actors were playing their parts 25 years older. Stewart replied, It looks a little bit Uncle Remus-y to me. Ford responded, What's wrong with Uncle Remus? He called for the crew's attention and announced, One of our players doesn't like Woody's costume. Now, I don't know if Mr. Stewart has a prejudice against Negroes, but I just want you all to know about it. Stewart said he wanted to crawl into a mouse hole, but Wayne told him, Well, welcome to the club. I'm glad you made it. Did you know? The one cast member who could get away with just about anything on the set was Lee Marvin. John Ford appreciated him not only for his acting and his World War II service as a Marine, but for Marvin's genuineness as a person. 
One day, Ford came on the set and Marvin whistled loudly through his teeth. The crew froze, certain there would be trouble. Instead, Ford just smiled, because he recognized that what Marvin was doing was giving the Admiral's whistle and piping the director on board. Did you know? John Ford was quite harsh on John Wayne during filming. Some have ascribed it to Ford's age and increasing impatience with filmmaking. Others say he resented Wayne because so few of the scenes Ford worked on without credit for Wayne's film The Alamo, 1960, actually made it to the screen. One day when Wayne casually suggested a minor scene change, Ford lost his temper and screamed, Jesus Christ, here I take you out of eight-day westerns, I put you in big movies, and you give me a stupid suggestion like that. Did you know? According to Woody Strode, John Wayne was so hurt by John Ford's abuse that he took it all out on Strode. When filming an exterior shot on a horse-drawn cart, Wayne almost lost control of the horses and knocked Strode away when he attempted to help. When the horses did stop, Wayne tried to pick a fight with the younger and fitter Strode. Ford called out, don't hit him, Woody, we need him. Wayne later told Strode, we gotta work together, we both gotta be professionals. Strode blamed Ford for nearly all the friction on the set. Quote, what a miserable film to make, he added. Did you know? Valance addresses several characters as dude. From the 1870s to 1960s, this was a pejorative term with the approximate meaning of overly dressed city slicker, usually applied to city dwellers visiting rural areas. In the 1960s, surfer culture adapted the term to mean friend or companion. Did you know? At the time of release, this was dismissed as a lesser work from a once great director and was stuck on the bottom half of Double Bills. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Alright Dad, what is this movie about or what would be the elevator pitch? The definition of the West, when legend and fact cross. I had a new law and order comes to the Old West as law tries to replace the last vestiges of the hired gun. Okay. Okay. Best performance for you? John Wayne. That was mine as well. I, I, I As I've indicated, the subtleties of John Wayne's performance, the last 20 minutes of the film where he understands that he is an outdated individual. He is no longer the leader, the spokesman, he is no longer the representative of the Old West. The Old West is dying, and he knows that as the leader of the Old West, he is no longer viable. I do agree that the last 20 minutes is what really sells it. I think up until that point, you have not really met Donovan, or and see, that's my mistake, because I always thought it was Donovan until we actually started putting these together for the notes, but you don't meet Donovan until the point where he brings Jimmy Stewart back from the wilderness where he's been attacked and basically left for dead. And so from that point, the character always has this high morale, almost perch as the arbiter of all that is the old West. He is the gatekeeper to whether Stewart basically lives or dies. He holds him in his hands and shields him up until the point where Wayne is forced to basically choose between being altruistic or sacrificing his own future for that of not only Stuart's, but the person he loves most. And I think in that moment, that's what gets me the most, is you can see the anger, the hurt, the jadedness that's all behind that because anybody who's ever been on the other side of a unrequited love situation you feel all of that from him in that moment and when he burns down his own house yeah you could blame it on a drunken accident but you, what you really know it is i've now given up the life that i thought i would have i i agree and i mean personality that come through during that time frame. And it's so clear that he understands that he is antiquated, that he is no longer a viable representative, that the Old West is dying. He is the representative of that Old West. And the future does not have a place for him in it. And as a method to move on from the past, he essentially has to die or 
allow himself to be forgotten or obsolete or antiquated. Yes. Now, I thought the other big scene for me as far as his performance, you get the sense of it, and it's kind of set up in advance. You're thinking to yourself, because he says it as a line, but how does he back it up? We've already seen how vile and nasty and violent Liberty Valance can be. Even though the the true violence to Stuart is off screen because they pan up so that you can only see the whip coming down as opposed to actually beating him because it's 1962, you still see what the character of Valance is. Now, cross that with Tom saying in basically Stuart's recovery, he is the meanest man south of the picket wire or the toughest man except for me. Okay, how is John Wayne going to intimidate this guy who is clearly the biggest bully on the block? But it's that scene where you have the showdown in Peter's place over the stake and he trips James Stewart and, okay, who's going to pick it up? And he just stands and towers over Valance and you can see him cowering. And it's the one time that you really feel the sense that he's the guy that stands between Valance's true terrorism of this small town and James Stewart potentially moving this into a new era of the West. And when you're talking about that scene, the one thing I noticed is that there are th- the, each of the three characters, Lee Marvin, James Stewart, and John Wayne, are either on the floor, sitting, or standing. And as the power shifts throughout the scene, it varies between sitting, standing, or being on the floor. If you remember, Stuart it, thinks he's got valance. He's found the law that's going to change everything. So he thinks that he is going to prevail based upon principle. And he walks by, valance trips him while sitting. He's now on the floor, as is Donovan's stake, Wayne's stake. Wayne stands up. He is now towering over valance. Stuart's on the floor. What ends up happening, Stuart grabs the stake off the floor and Principal says, I am going to deal with the stake. And he stands up, throws it on the plate. Wayne sits down. Now Wayne and Valance are on equal footing, both sitting. And Stuart, by Principal, is standing over them lecturing. No, see, that's not how it ends. Donovan doesn't sit down until after Marvin's left. Because Marvin gets up to leave, and then there's the scene at the end, just try it, Valance, because he's going to actually try and shoot at him. Well, that's, again, where all three now are trying to portray dominance. Correct. It's an alpha maleism at that point. I just thought, you know, the shift between sitting, standing, and being on the floor was not by happenstance. So my best secondary was James Stewart then. And I think you possibly could have gone in several different directions. I could have given it to the writers on this one, the adaptation or the original creator of the writing, because I think this is either based on a short story or some type of novella of some variety, because this is an adapted work. But I went with Stuart ultimately because I find him to be the most relatable character. And in a movie that's a period piece that is supposed to be about the last chapter of the West, more or less, in a somewhat obvious metaphor. I think he is the character that's the bridge between the audience and current day, whether it's 1962 or 2022, to, I'm going to guess this is like the 1880s. Correct. Might even be a little later than that, but depending on which Western state you're talking about, because... Each had advanced to certain levels. Again, it's a fictional town in a fictional state. So I don't think it's really mattering. I'm just putting it in kind of a wide berth area where a state something like this would probably become a state. Regardless of any of that, I think Stuart excels all the time at playing altruistic characters that have principled, almost naivete And you mentioned Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's very much in telling about what this character is, but he more or less could be just Jonathan... Oh, I can't remember his character. Is it Jonathan Smith? Yes. 
but that brand of steward, it's kind of in the same way that Hanks is in like Philadelphia. He's kind of standing against the system on principle, but he's the everyman that I think we put ourselves in his shoes. And I wouldn't say this is a stellar performance per se, which is why I think he's the best secondary, but there's a certain talent that he could just do and bring out, even though it may not have been his fastball, his changeup is still pretty damn good. Correct. That's why I had him also as my secondary performance as well, because I thought there's a certain level of subtlety that comes in there and his willingness to stand up for principle that comes out. And you use the term any man or every man, and you mentioned Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. There's a reason why the two are often compared to each other. I think they both have a certain quality that are relatable for most average males in this country, that they at least see themselves to some extent in either Tom Hanks and or James Stewart. So then finally, or most charismatic, who did you have down? Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin is so good. I will give honorable mention to the Marshal, Andy Devine, um, who I always loved as a character actor, dating back uh, to his radio days in the early uh, 1930s when he was part of the Jack Benny radio show. As somebody who has been uh, enough of a nerd that I've listened to all of the Jack Benny radio programs from 1933 till 1957. Nerd alert. Yeah, the only thing that I know Andy Devine from is this, and what was that? Is it the Robin Hood, the the Disney animated version? Yes. I can't remember which character he plays, but it it doesn't really matter. In this movie, I don't know if this is him creating the character or doing all these other things, but there's so many subtle, small movements. Him just kind of leaning over anything that's food-related and just kind of letting it waft into his face. Or the little things that he does with his fingers. Like, you notice that he's always got them in front of him, and they're just kind of weasley and kind of going uh, fidgety all the time during the course of this movie that tells you that he is this lily-livered coward. Or one of the most brilliant moments is at the end of the movie, and tell him that Link Appleyard chase you out of town. And he turns back and lets the saloon door hit him. And as it just taps him on the ass, he's just got this terrified look on his face. Like somebody's <laughs> actually going to come after him. And there's just so many small subtleties to that. But I also nominated Lee Marvin because he creates one of the all-time Western villains. Yeah. I don't think that this movie is the same if you don't create an equally charismatic challenge for both of these guys to overcome. I never thought that Tom is overmatched by Lee Marvin or Liberty Valens because it's really the essence that Tom can always overcome it. It's whether he chooses to or not because he recognizes Valens as a necessary evil to maintain his current status within this world as opposed to the transition that if Liberty Valens was not allowed to persist, he would no longer be a part of and thus become the obsolete character that you've been talking about. And partly to Lee Marvin's supported very well by the two closest ruffians, Lee Van Cleef and uh, Struther Martin. Uh, We will uh, be dealing with Struther Martin during our sports month coming up as he is a key character in Slapshot. Okay, I don't remember the connection there, but it's been a while since I've seen Slapshot. All right, let's go to best scene then. Move this a little bit along. My nominees are The Cactus Roses, Stagecoach Arrival, Peter's Place Showdown, Tom Teaches Rants About Liberty's Tricks, Statehood Delegates, Shinbone Star Ransacked, Rants Duels Liberty, Statehood Convention, and who shot Liberty Valance? Did I miss any? Closing scene. That's kind of where I have that, that last piece, but sure. I think because that, I will say right up front, that's my most indelible moment. You've got to be more specific because the last scene, if you're talking about the line that I think you are, that's not the yes. last scene. Okay, second to last scene. The, la- or the second to last scene where he f- basically admits he didn't shoot Liberty Valance and... Sir, this is the West, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. 
that to me is the most indelible moment because that summarizes so much in life, in politics, in society. Back in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the uh, early 21st century, and even now, the legend always supersedes the fact. We elect presidents based on legend instead of fact. Well, and then we eulogize them in legend. Yes. So, as far as best scene, for me, though, I'll go with, I really like the statehood or delegates I wouldn't say it's, it's, so there's two different statehood meetings. It's the first of the two, the bar's closed and Liberty comes in. They're having this formal meeting, but really Tom's backing everything up while Mr. Peabody's fidgeting and all over the place because he's clearly in withdrawal and (laughs) Rance is running the meeting reluctantly, but at the same time he gets nominated for things. So, I mean, with the contrast of Liberty being there with his goons and everybody standing collectively together, I think this is kind of the central point around which the closing action begins. So you could say this is the end of Act 2 and leading into the beginning of Act 3 where you get the resolution. But I I think that might be one of the better scenes of this movie. I had the uh, confrontation at Pete's place. So that I had nominated for my favorite scene, but go ahead. Well, and I have that as my favorite scene as well. I mean, the most indelible is the the uh, second to last scene, but the favorite scene is what I have there is that because just because of what I had indicated, which is it was fast flowing. It was where there was an interaction between the Old West of or the epitome of the Old West and Lee Marvin the crossover where it's right and might with John Wayne and then intellect and reason with Stuart. And the three of them are constantly interweaving against each other, trying to see who would end up dominant. So I went with that as my favorite scene, just because I like the interplay between the three of them. And there's not many scenes where all three of them are together, really kind of facing off against each other. And you get the push and the pull of where each of these guys stands in this conflict. Because really, it's a triangle reaction of conflict during the course of the movie. That Stuart's in one corner, and if he ultimately succeeds, the other two have to fail in some way. If Tom succeeds, then both of the other two have to fail, etc., etc., etc. And so you have this, it's almost kind of a metaphorical Mexican standoff of ways in which this is a conflict. So to me, that's the best scene, or excuse me, that's my favorite scene because of how they each are able to play off of each other, probably for the only time in the movie. And I think those are the three strongest characters. So most indelible for for me, I know you've mentioned yours already, so we won't even touch on that one, but... For me, the most indelible will always be that scene where it's the reveal. Especially the first time you watch this, you are led to believe Stuart's killed it. And he's feeling all of this guilt and anxiety and how can I build a life and a legend based on killing a man when it's against every principle I've ever stood for? You stood up to the bully, but you had to do it in a way that was outdated to continue to borrow that phrase. And so he tries to leave. He's going to go home. He says he's going to go back east. And it's Tom who not only stops him, in the moment where Tom could have everything that he wanted, he could have his Old West still there, he could have his girl, because he's going to leave, and he does the altruistic thing, realizing that the person he loves does not love him that way. And so he has to support this endeavor, in for a penny, in for a pound. If you're going to kill Liberty Valance, you also have to kill the idea of anything and any life you would have with Hallie. So I'm going to relieve Stuart of his guilt. I'm going to allow him to be the champion and the hero that we need in this moment. And I'm going to be the heavy. I'm going to basically be the silent protector, the dark knight, if you will, who protects everybody else and does it at my own risk, peril, and sacrifice. You didn't kill Liberty Valance. So ultimately, now take the girl 
who has pledged herself in heart and soul to you and give her some life that I can't give her. To me, that will always be the most indelible because I feel like I've been that guy for most of my life. <laughs> Even though I would sh- surely say no one else would think that of me. I, I understand. I understand very well. I think that's why certain movies I'm stronger attached to than others. This is one reason why. So, all right, let's take another quick break and we will be right back. Welcome back. All right, before we move any further, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we have several. Uh, Andre Leon Tali, uh, 73, a fashion writer and former creative director of Vogue. Uh, he joined Vogue in 1983 as the magazine's fashion news director before he was promoted to creative director to editor-in-chief. Anna Wintour in 1986. He held the role until 1995. He was the a judge on America's Next Top Model for seasons 14 to th- 17. He was also author of a mem- uh, memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, which takes readers through his 50-year-long career in the fashion industry. We also lost Gaspard Ulliel, 37, French actor, was a well-known name in France, working with some of the industry's top actors and directors, including Bertrand Benello's 2015 biopic Saint Laurent, where he played the French fashion mogul Yves Saint Laurent. His breakout performances included roles in Jean-Pierre Junet's A Very Long Engagement, Bertrand Tavernier, La Princesse de Montpensier, forgive my French accent here, Xavier Dolan's It's Only the End of the World, which won the actor a César Award in 2017 for his starring role alongside Marion Cotillard and Lea Seydoux. He made his English-language debut in 2007's Hannibal Rising and stars alongside Oscar Isaac in the Marvel upcoming Moon Knight series. He unfortunately passed away in a skiing accident. Uh, Yvette Menou, 80, American actress, uh, was a uh, 1960s star of uh, hits such as The Time Machine and Where the Boys Are. Her other major titles included Platinum High School, Mr. Lucky, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Toys in the Attic, Joy in the Morning, and the TV series The Most Deadly Game. Uh, she originated the role of Clara Johnson in Light in the Piazza, opposite Olivia de Havilland as her mother. The film went on to be adapted into a Broadway musical. You knew was also a writer, penning TV movies such as Hit Lady and Lady Boss, which she also starred in. Fred Paris, 85, band leader and singer, was the leader of the doo-wop group The Five Satins, who penned their signature song, In the Still of the Night. Paris uh, co-founded the group in his hometown of New Haven, Connecticut, in 1954 and wrote the 1956 classic while on guard duty at a U.S. Army base in Philadelphia. The Five Satins recorded in the still of the night in the basement of a New Haven church, a modest start for a song that would become one of the most endearingly popular of its era. I never expected it to have so much of an impact, Paris recalled in a 2014 interview with the New Haven Register. I didn't know if we were going to listen to, to it for 15 minutes later, let alone 50 years. The song has been real good to me. By the way, the song was not as you sang it, but in the still of the night. Yep. Okay. My mistake. Joe Dunn, 86 British stuntman and coordinator who uh, worked on Reindeer Games, Mercury Rising, and The Usual Suspects. This is one that you and I discussed not really film, but more pop culture in general and entertainment. Ralph Emery, uh, 88, American Hall of Fame uh, disc jockey and television host, began his career in the 1950s at a small radio station in the state before going on to become one of the most famous TV and radio personalities in country music, including announcing at the Grand Old Opry, from 1961 to 1964, according to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Ralph Emery's impact in expanding country music's audiences is incalculable. 
On radio and television, he allowed fans to get to know the people behind the songs. Ralph was more a grand conversationalist than a calculated interviewer. Above all, he believed in music and in the people who make it. Kyle Young, CEO of the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum, said in a tribute on its website. Uh, Emery was inducted into the Country Music Disc Jockey Hall of Fame in 1989 and the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2007. Before it became, he's been a television personality that's had a lot to do with, with country music and the presentation of it on television for a number of years. As I indicated, when I was a kid and listened to country music, um, he would still once in a while MC at the Grand Old Opry. And uh, uh, as a small boy, I could listen and thought it was really cool to get Clear Channel out of Nashville to listen to the Grand Old Opry at uh, what I thought was really late at night, 9 o'clock on a Saturday. And then uh, Richard Fulmer, actor known for Straw Dogs, Cleaner, and The Root Cellar. Passed away at 79. Thank you. We take a moment here of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, best funniest lines. I don't think there's really any funny lines per se in this movie. John Ford was not a particularly funny director, but first one up for me, and it's one I've quoted a lot, and frankly, several of these will be ones that we've quoted a lot in our review so far. Tom Donovan, Liberty Valance is the toughest man south of the picket wire, next to me. Uh, Liberty Valance, you looking for trouble, Donovan? Donovan, you aiming to help me find some? Stoddard, you're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? Maxwell Scott, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Link Appleyard, the jail's only got one cell, the lock's broke, and I sleep in it. Dutton Peabody, give me a drink. Tom Donovan, bar's closed. Just a beer. The bar's closed. A beer's not drinking. One steak for Mr. Peabody with fixins. Steak, beans, potatoes, and a deep dish apple pie. Someday he'll order something different and we'll all fate dead away. I have the final line of the movie. Conductor, nothing's too good for the man who shot Liberty Valance. Gets me every time. You have any more? Nope, I don't. Thinking about it, though, what politician hasn't their career been built on by some sort of false representation? Richard Nixon? Really? His entire career was built on whether or not Elger Hiss really uh, was a communist spy. I don't know. At a certain point, you knew exactly who Dick Nixon was. You knew yeah. what you were getting. Yeah. It really shouldn't have been that shocking. When he referred to uh, uh, his opponent, Douglas, in California as pink as her underwear. Well, times were certainly more entertaining back in the day. Yep. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first one. Legacy. I, I think this is a film that a lot of people, as you've indicated, I mean, it's it's being preserved by the National, by the uh, Library of Congress. It's being, you know, talked about. I, I think it's well regarded as a Western, and I think it has, as time's gone by among the industry, been deemed as one of John Ford's better films, John Wayne's better films, and uh, kind of the culmination of their collaboration through the years. So I went with a 4.5 for the industry. And for the public... You know, there are film enthusiasts like us who know this film. And I just, a couple of times this week, mentioned The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and watched people of different age groups. The husband of a friend of ours who he, he kind of paused for a second. Oh, yeah. And there's been various people who've said the same. So I, I, I can't give it a straight high mark for the for legacy of the general public. It's one that they don't normally think about until you mention it. And then all of a sudden, like a light comes on and they go, oh yeah. So I went with a four on that simply because people who are familiar with it really like it. They just don't always think about it. All right. So what was that a total for you? 
8.5. You had a 4.5 for industry and a 4 for the audience? Yes. Really? Yes. With that as your last sentence on the audience, that not a lot of people know of it and can barely remember it? I mean, no, good God, don't think about it. But the minute once you mention it, almost everybody likes the film. No. I'm sorry. There, there's just no way. So I'm, I'll lay it out for you. First off, industry on that part of it. I'll agree with you that for the industry, I think there's been a reexamination, a reckoning on this film. At the time, and it'll get severe marks in the next category for this, I just think that there were a lot of people that thought it was kind of a throwaway film at the end of John Ford's career. It wasn't really anything memorable, despite its two stars, despite Lee Marvin, who I can't, I don't know, was he kind of a star of the 60s? I mean, he was in another big film that we discussed early on in the show's episode run with The Dirty Dozen, but I don't remember him being like a huge mega star of any variety. He's an actor that was kind of a tough guy that popped up in a lot of different films. But despite all of that, I see this often and I went and looked up, you know, what are the greatest Westerns? And I started looking through about 10 to 15, 20 lists this afternoon while I was putting my notes together. And this often appears in most of those lists, depending on how big or small, but it's usually in the second tier of great Westerns that people mention. It's not with the elite of the elite, the searchers, the good, the bad, and the ugly, unforgiven, or the wild bunch. Those are the, like, creme de la creme. But it's in the second tier of movies with the Fistful of Dollars, the Rio Bravos, the Butch Cassidy's and the Sundance Kid, Red River often appears in that. It's kind of in that tier. So from that standpoint, because it's kind of been bumped back up the list, and because it's been more recognized as a better film, as you said, for Wayne and Stewart and Ford, and this great collaboration between the three of them, I went a four for industry. But this is a one for audience. Because I don't know many people who know anything about this movie. Nobody under the age of about 40 probably has heard of this movie. I <laughs> hang out in like movie circles with certain people that are like 10 to 15, 20 years older than me that have heard and seen a ton of these classic movies that we talk about. And I talk about them on these discord channels with people. They hadn't heard of this today while I was just mentioning, I'm putting the notes together for it. So I love the fact that we can introduce this to a new audience because you and I love this movie. Like we truly love it. And I would agree the people that have seen it and really know it, love this movie, but this is an often forgotten film. It's also one not many people are familiar with. If you ask, name a John Wayne movie, it's going to be about six films for most people before they can get to this one, if at all. So it's a one for me. That ends up at a five. So between... I'll, I'll reduce my number for the audience to a three based on your arguments. I won't go any lower than that because I'm talking about and and in so part of it is a seven point five. Then yes, we look at it through the through the lenses of our own experiences, and at least as far as my generation, this film holds a much greater sway than I think your generation does. And I would buy that. But as far as westerns and westerns that my generation has seen, it's just not a lot of them. They may have seen. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, or at least know something about it. I think that one has a higher legacy score. But the Western is not something that they grew up with, where your generation was at the tail end of it. And I, when I say your generation, I don't mean the baby boomers that you're technically a part of, but really you're kind of a soul that's the partial remnants after that of all the yeah. children of the baby boomers. Correct. So they're the ones that really love the Westerns and probably showed them off to their kids, but you guys didn't really pass that necessarily along. And that's why the Western has kind of had these cycles of coming back around and we've had to make different other genres, combinations of Western films, which is why now we're getting like the Western themed Star Wars movie or TV show, you know, that sort of thing. So it's not something that's, it's going to be part of the, consciousness it's not going to be discussed and really as a great western film outside of industry people that watch a ton of these movies and watch a lot of old classic movies so impact significance i want a two and a half for industry i think the critics were generally positive but lukewarm at best this was kind of a generally enjoyable film 
but certainly they were not effusive in their praise. Most of the reviews that I saw thought it was good, not great, and often criticized the final 20 to 30 minutes where we said in last week, kind of previewing this, that Ford really hits you over the head with his point, that he's not going to leave it kind of out there. And I think critics sometimes get in their own way when they love the subtlety and they love to look at everything like it's an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel instead of just appreciating somebody who makes a point really well, even if it's just Mm -hmm. right out in front of you and they're basically orating right at you. Yes. So I went with a two and a half for that. I also went with a two and a half for the audience. This was the 15th highest grossing movie of 1962, so it wasn't bad. But we mentioned at the top as as a did you know. This was not expected to be a high producer. It was often on the bottom of double-billed films. And it was still a movie that had two major stars, but they were at the tail end of their primes. For me, it was a two and a half for that even. So I ended up at a five for that category as well. Impact uh, significance for the industry at a three. I thought it did fairly well as far as what the critics were saying, and I think it was appreciated more than what you're indicating. The industry itself, I think it exceeded expectations, so I'm a little higher than you are. Um, I went with a 3.5 for uh, that simply because I think uh, the studio expected it to not be a very popular film, and I think it exceeded expectations, so I went with that. So I'm at 6.5. So I forgot to give the average for the last category, which was after you came down to a 7.5, a 6.25. Between our 6.5 and 5 on this category, it is a 5.75. Novelty. This is, for me, an 8. Most takes on the Western either celebrate the violence and vigilante justice of an unlawful society or have a nostalgia for it that eulogizes a West that is either fading or is no more. This is about the only Western I can think of that does both, and I believe it is effective at doing so instead of this mediocre split the difference that it could have been. So I think for that by itself, I'll give it an 8. I went with an 8.5 because I thought for a novelty point, I think this started a redefinition of what the West was or Westerns were, which is that they were more than just the good guy and the bad guy and... uh, The white hat and the black hat. Yeah. Um, There was a lot more subtlety in this, so that's why I went with an 8.5. So that's an 8.25 between us. Classicness, your category. I started thinking about this. I mean... For the time frame, um, I thought the fact that they had a significant black character in the film, even though he was limited in his scope and what he did, uh, at least there was something in that vein. I thought that Vera Miles' character was more or was fairly independent, was not necessarily beholden onto a guy, so there was some aspect of the female lead being better. So I I went from a classic. I didn't find a whole lot that was difficult. Uh, The nuances of the violence, the new West of John Wayne and the idealism of uh, Stuart. I went with a nine. The only way I would say that you might take a few points off is, is that how much they do to avert your eyes from any of the violence. I think that if you're really going to put the juxtaposition in, between the Old West and the New, you really have to emphasize the difference between principle and the violence of the dog-eat-dog world of the New West, or excuse me, the Old West, that had no rules and no law. So that would be one of the only things that I think that it doesn't necessarily age well, because in a modern sense, or even a couple of years later, you're talking about Sergio Leone's movies are drastically different from this, as far as a violent standpoint, where The Wild Bunch, I think, was 1967, and Peckinpah is extremely violent in that movie. I mean, he's just gunning people down left and right. I mean, you could barely walk out on the street and you're getting gunned down by seven or eight stray bullets. So I think there's a little bit of a difference between where the 60s were and ended up being even a year or two later, or which directors were taking chances on these. That's one of the few areas that I would, but I didn't really take any points away from that because I don't think it's that kind of story. When we talk about a Mr. Smith goes to the West... That's kind of what we're talking about. And I don't think John Wayne or James Stewart really would have fit in in this uber-violent type movie. But 
from not taking any points really away, I usually started a seven and I've been on record for the almost the entire point of the show. I started a seven on this category and either take points away, give points up based on that. If it's just kind of average, I can't take points away. I'll just stay at the seven. For being on a soundstage or backlot, as opposed to Monument Valley, as we kind of mentioned in the Did You Know section, like many other Ford Westerns, specifically The Searchers and maybe Red River, it doesn't look quite as appealing, but it is still an effective visual storytelling. Whether you want to say this is kind of a noir Western, to be kind of oddly specific about it, the one area I could look to either raise or lower this total yet is the discussion of the two characters you already mentioned. Pompey and Halley. Both, to me, are stronger moral characters with their own motivations and agencies, but are still mostly sidekicks to the momentum of the changing West that engulfs the two major protagonists. I don't think this was as much for a racial statement for Ford, but it still does make you aware that the attitudes of the West are changing, but they haven't evolved in all areas yet, namely women and blacks. So I went with an 8. Alright. Do you need help with the math? It's an 8.5 average between them. Alright. Rewatchability. <laughs> I could probably watch this movie five to eight times a year without much of an issue. This is a ten. For me. The only reason I wouldn't give it a straight ten is, is because there are some days, quite frankly, due to stress and anxiety and all of the demands on my time and schedule, a comedy is something that I would rely on much more than a Western. So I went with a 9.5. I just love watching the film. And I can pick it up in the middle and know where it is. And, you know, any aspect of it is fun to watch. So that's a 9.75 between us. For audience score, we had an 88% for Google users. We had a 92% for Rotten Tomato users. That averages out to a nine total points. So then to repeat, we had a 6.25 for Legacy. We had a 5.75 for Impact Significance. We had 8.25 for novelty. We had 8.5 for classicness. We had a 9.75 for rewatchability. And we had a 9 for audience score, giving us a 47.5 overall score. It would put it between Beverly Hills Cop and A Night at the Opera, last week's movie. Wow. Okay. So kind of like right dab in the middle of this list. All right. So that will be the 96th different movie reviewed on the show. I know we have episode 100 next week, but we have had three revisit episodes. But that's kind of where the list is going into number 100 and potentially the greatest movie of all time, which I assume could get very high marks. And I had a working assumption would be the greatest movie of all time when we started this show. That's always been my working thought. But we'll see what happens next week when we put it through the rubric. So, any remaining questions? Uh, no, not really. Um, so, I've always had one, and it's the one that's really stuck out to me. They come back for Tom's funeral, and somewhere in, in the notes here, it implied there was a roughly 25-year period where Ransom Stoddard is, like, governor three or four times, and then he goes for, like, two terms in the Senate. Then he was a ambassador to somewhere that I can't remember. And then or to St. James, which is that's what it was. Engels, so, or Great Britain. Okay, so, but regardless. So they're probably away for 30 years or something to that effect. And Tom has burnt down his house, and we can see from the opening scene that he has clearly not rebuilt it. So if Tom burnt his house and clearly never rebuilt it, given the scene near the beginning of the movie... What was the rest of his life like, and where did he go? Nowhere. Well, I mean, he dies in Shinbone. Yeah. But, like, what happens with his life? He's just a vestige of bygone era. Yes. So he just is hanging around waiting to die? More or less, yes. That's an awfully sad character. Yes. So any final thoughts for the week? No, not really about the movie. I'm kind of excited about hitting 100 next week so as am i i don't know of all the surprises we may or may not have in store yet for that one i think i'm gonna try and put some curveballs in place but we'll see what we have in store i know most of the ones actually all of the big ones that we've done so far 25 when we did rio bravo 
50 when we did Casablanca, 75 with Wizard of Oz. You and I have done ourselves. So we haven't had anybody guest or do anything for one of the huge episodes. But it'd be nice if we had maybe some drop-ins from some of our more frequent guests and uh, some people for some congratulations or maybe some fan write-ins somewhere or another. But uh, yeah, got to be 100 next week. Not many people or shows make it to this point. Yeah, uh, very fall, or uh, small number uh, make it to 100. And um, we had uh, kind of some nice marks recently as far as the number of downloads. So, Yes, that's right. We did hit the 10,000 mark in the last week or so. And uh, again, if you enjoy the show, please um, suggest it to others. Like I said, we're you know part of the whole concept of this is, is one we just like to talk about movies and and two we're trying to help people find great films that exist that they're not familiar with or haven't thought of in a while. How many times do you uh, sit down, uh, especially on a Friday or Saturday night with your significant other, and uh, what do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? You start thumbing through a streaming service and uh, you run across a film, and we hope that it's one that we've done, that you've heard or listened to, and uh, maybe you go, hey, you know, I haven't seen this, but it, the, when they talked about it, it was sounded fun, so why don't we watch it? It's, it's our way of helping to create a following for some films that we think are worth following. And also to find out what the greatest film is. And then the debate. Yes. Although some of the films we've ranked, I'm surprised and shocked as to where they are. So Always have the opportunity for a revisit. We do. So. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, it will be our 100th episode, and we will be covering one of the biggest and most widely recognized great films of all time to celebrate. The Godfather. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle Podcast. That's G-M-O-A-T Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.